Hey everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss their favorite works of literature and poetry and how they can help us to think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. If you want to learn more about me, you can head over to my website, jenniferannfrey.com. You can also follow me on social media, on Twitter at Jen Frey, or on Instagram at Professor S. Frey. You can also find some of my writing over at the Virtue blog. In episode 19 of the podcast, titled Love and Lust and Lolita, I am speaking with the literary critic and PhD candidate in philosophy at Harvard University, Becca Rothfeld. Becca and I will be talking about Nabokov's celebrated novel. If you are not familiar with this material, I want to give you a heads up. This episode has mature and disturbing content, so if the kiddos are around, make sure that you turn the volume down or put in those headphones because we are going to be talking about some seriously adult things. As always, I hope you enjoy our conversation. I am super happy to have Becca Rothfeld on the podcast with me this afternoon. Becca is an award-winning essayist and literary critic, and she's also a fourth-year PhD candidate in philosophy at Harvard University. Becca is also, in my humble opinion, the most interesting graduate student in analytic philosophy that I've ever met, and I've met a lot of them. So welcome to the podcast, Becca. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So we should tell our listeners that we tried to have this podcast, I think, three other times, and uh, we had all these technical difficulties, which were insane, and which turned out to just be the fact that my headphones were broken, and I was too stupid (laughs) to recognize this, too stupid, or so I don't really know what was going on there. So it's finally all working. I'm so excited. And uh, I also just realized this morning that... We met by doing a podcast for The Point magazine. Yes, we did. Um, Two years ago now or something. It was on Me Too. I think we were like the two women who were sort of annoyed by Me Too. I think since many more have become sort of annoyed by Me Too, so maybe we started it on that podcast. But (laughs) But at any rate, so yeah, so you wrote an essay recently for The Point mag on Lolita called The Real Lolita. Um, And you talk about Me Too, and so it sort of feels like it's all coming full circle. And of course, I want to talk about your essay in The Point magazine, Um, but I feel like, you know, just just to start everything off, we should just start with the basics. Like, why don't you just tell us who Nabokov is and why you, as your Gmail address says, why do you like Nabokov so much? So my Gmail address is I like Nabokov, and I now regret making it that instead of I love Nabokov. People (laughs) often ask me why, and I actually have no good explanation. Um, But Nabokov is an American-Russian writer uh, who was born in Russia and spoke Russian, but also spoke English and French uh, fluently So which one did he learn first? Do you know? I think he learned Russian first, but I think that he spoke all three as a child. Okay. So he didn't... 
Initially, when I encountered Nabokov, I was under the impression that he had learned English pretty late in life when he moved to America, but that's not true. He learned English as a child. So it's less less incredible, though still incredible, that he writes such amazing English prose. So that's interesting because I had the same impression. One of my first of a series of many existential crises in my life was reading Nabokov. So I was 18 and I read Lolita and I was crushed. I was completely crushed because I thought English was his third language, which maybe it was, but sort of like from the beginning. Yeah. But, and I was just like, well, why did the rest of us even make any attempt? I should just give up and die because. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I still feel that way. And even if he were born speaking English, I would still feel that way because he's a much better writer than the rest of us. However, I think that he did speak English uh, as a child, like in his aristocratic Russian household. And he went to Cambridge too. So he spoke English as like a college student. So for me, I was like, well, I'll never write English as anywhere near as good as this. So I might as well just stop. Uh, I might as well give up. And in fact, I did for a while. It was sort of sad. Um, Please don't give up. Uh, I think Nabokov's a better writer than most of us in many languages. Um, But so he wrote initially in Russian, like his first fiction was in Russian, although he wrote a lot of it after he had already uh, been been exiled, not exactly exiled, but chosen to emigrate from Russia because the political situation was fraught um, for his family. Um, Well, yeah, so he was an aristocrat. Yes. And he was like sort of unapologetically aristocratic in his mannerisms and uh, sensibilities for his whole life. Uh, He lived in Berlin for a while, which I believe is where he met his wife, Vera. Um, And so he wrote initially a bunch of things in Russian. And then later in his life, he wrote some things in English. And he, I think, I believe helped his son do some translations of his Russian stuff into English. So eventually he's at Cornell, right? He's a professor of literature at Cornell. Um, by way of Harvard for a while, he worked in the butterfly collection. He was like really into butterflies. About how many of his books are in English? Is it like half? I want to say that it is It is about half. Uh, I could look at like a list. No, it's fine. Yeah. Do you ever write a novel in French? I don't think so. But I think, right. I mean, he spoke French fluently. Um, and he yeah, wrote well, in that... French, but no, I don't yeah. think so. Basically, if you were Russian aristocracy, yeah, um, that would be that would befit your class status. Yes. Um, yeah. So so anyway, so that's Nabokov. Let's talk about Lolita. Is Lolita like his first novel? No. Um, so he wrote actually several proto Lolitas uh, before he ended up writing Lolita. So Laughter in the Dark is like sort of a lesser version of Lolita that he wrote a few years before. Um, there's also a novella that's sort of like a proto Lolita. Um, so I think I want to say Lolita's maybe like his 10th novel or something. Mm-hmm. It's the novel that makes him famous, though, correct? Like... Yes. Well, I think he's sort of already like a little bit famous, but Lolita really makes him like super famous. Now that I'm looking at the front of Lolita, which has a list of the novels he wrote, it's actually his 12th novel, not his 10th. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so I think by this time, I think it was like his second novel in English. I believe that Ben Sinister was his first novel in English. Um, But he had been living in America for like a little while when he wrote Lolita. Um, And he was already a pretty well-known writer, at least in the Russian emigre community. Yeah. And so why do you like Nabokov's writing? Um, Why do you love Nabokov's writing? So many reasons. I I think Nabokov basically has two modes, one of which is uh, very devious and I, I like his cleverness and his cheekiness, but I also love the 
emotionally rich lushness of his prose. I think just at a sentence level, he's one of the best English prose stylists, and that's probably the main reason why I like him. But I also think that the... So about half of his writing is just super nostalgic for his childhood in Russia, and a lot of that writing I find pretty intensely moving uh, and like beautifully evocative of childhood. So for all these reasons, I love Nabokov, and Lolita is just a stunningly beautiful book. Every sentence of it is perfect. It really is. Yeah, yeah. no, it's crazy. <laughs> it reminds me of Flaubert in that sense, right? Yes. Where there's just every sentence you're like, okay, well, actually the sentence couldn't be better than it is. And I think that's that's both very attractive and and also maybe a little devastating if you're not quite able to write that way but um yeah it's an it's an incredibly beautiful novel um which is weird because it's also a gross novel in some obvious way yeah um <laughs> so I mean, I, you know, I've been spending all morning with my 12 year old daughter who's so amazing. And oh now I'm talking about uh, a man who serially rapes a girl her age um, while, uh, while being her stepfather. It's distressing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, you know, it's intense. And yet I love this novel. It's a beautiful novel. It's a novel that I want to talk about and read again. Um, and so there's this tension, especially now. I mean, one of the things that you... So so it's a novel about pedophilia and yes. child rape. <laughs> in case just... any of our listeners don't know, <laughs> in case the plot are, of the book are... is that this pedophilic guy whose real name we never learn, uh, but who calls himself Humbert Humbert, uh, a name that captures the grossness of his uh, inner life, um, ends up... Uh, marrying this woman who dies because he is sexually obsessed with her 12-year-old daughter who becomes his stepdaughter and he ends up uh, raping this girl over the course of two years repeatedly. That is the plot of Until Lolita. she runs away. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And then he tries and fails to get her back. Um, the structure of the novel is a memoir in a sense. Well, it's a weird sort of memoir. Should we talk about that? Yeah, so it's 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 a memoir that it's introduced by this really funny, uh, clever thing that Nabokov wrote, obviously, that is um, supposedly written by a caseworker, like a psychologist, who's reading over the memoirs that Humbert Humbert wrote from prison after he had been arrested, not actually for what he did to Lolita, but for murdering the person that Lolita runs away with uh, when right. she ultimately leaves him, who's another person who's a pedophile, but one that I guess Lolita likes better. <laughs> Although, <laughs> you know, our circumstances are desperate by that point. Right. Um, and supposedly it's not being published until after everybody in the book is dead, uh, because those are Humbert's wishes. Right. So it's sort of like, so basically Humbert is the narrator. It's his perspective on what's happened. Um, it's his perspective on this love story. That's how he presents it. Um, that he, you know, he loves Lolita. Um, but Lolita has a forerunner. And it's extremely important that Lolita has a forerunner. And this is one way in which we see Nabokov's cleverness, right? So, so who's the forerunner? So Lolita's forerunner is Annabelle. Or is her, is her name Annabelle or does he, it Absolutely, is Annabelle? Absolutely, it's yeah. Annabelle. I mean, this is, uh, the cleverness is he's drawing directly the reference. Poe. And right? he calls himself so, Monsieur Popo at various points in the novel. Humbert like refers to himself as Monsieur Poe. Yeah. So 
Annabelle Lee is right. She's well, Annabelle Lee is the poem. Yes. And the girl's name is Annabelle. Um, so she was 12 when he was 12. And so they had a perfectly age appropriate, reasonable right. love affair. Totally normal. Um, but they were never able to consummate it because their parents kept interrupting them. And then ultimately when they tried to consummate it, uh, on the beach, uh, of the, near the hotel that Humbert's parents owned, they were interrupted by some ribald sailors laughing at them. Um, and so I think... Nabokov is kind of making fun of psychoanalysis and that he is positioning this story as the root of Humbert's lifelong obsession with 12-year-old girls in, so in some sense, even though it's kind of obvious that he regards that as too simplistic an explanation. Yeah, well, there's also the fact that Edgar Allan Poe had a child bride. Yeah. Right? So Edgar Allan Poe, when he was 27, married Virginia Clem, who was 13. And he lied about this. So on the marriage certificate, it says she's 21. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. She was 13. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, he, yeah. Uh, and I think, like, his first cousin. I don't know. It was obviously super oh, dear. Cre creepy, but, like, it's the 19th century. And I don't know. It's just, um, <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> uh, the kind of thing that happened, I guess. I, I and was the model for Annabelle Lee. Yeah, the she's the model for a lot of Poe's, you know, tortured soul kind of stuff. I mean, he really, he, so Poe himself loved a child bride very much. Um, there's a debate about the exact nature of their relationship. So um, a lot of people who want to see Poe remain um, a very, um, I don't know, an unproblematic un figure <laughs> in, in, in the American literary tradition, you know, want to insist that, oh, well, you know, they, they really lived as brother and sister. Um, okay, but he, yeah, he was in love with her. Um, and yeah, Annabelle Lee is, is about her from all that we can tell. And she does die also. Um, at a young age, I don't. I'm not sure how long their marriage lasted, but but she does die, and so this I think is Nabokov being especially clever. Yes. <laughs> so Humbert Humbert is a literary. He has literary aspirations. He's like a literary critic or something. What actually is his deal? What does He's he like, do? I guess like if he lived today, he would be an adjunct professor. But at that time, yeah. it was is a more survivable position or something. So he's like kind of a mediocre literary scholar who at one point wanted to be a poet or something but since does translations but because he's sort of like a pan-european person I, I guess he's french or swiss french. or something yeah. um and he so he does like translations but he also writes like literature textbooks that's right yes so he's sort of this old world european amidst the vulgar americans and um yeah he's constantly talking about like I don't know, whatever literary gig that he has, it doesn't seem to be very impressive because again, he's like, um, so basically he's a boarder in a house where Charlotte and Dolores, Dolores, AKA Lolita live. And Charlotte is her mother who he married. And Charlotte is the mother. One of the saddest characters in Lolita and I think one of the least discussed. <laughs> well, she's sort of a prop, right? Um, <laughs> I but rereading it actually, it's like I've read this book so many times, but like upon this reread, uh, I was struck by how sympathetic she was and how sad I felt on her behalf, and how I had never really noticed that before. <laughs> yeah, she's a sad. Yeah, she's she's definitely a, a sad sort of figure. We'll get there. Um, 
But the reason why I brought up that he's like this, that, that Humbert Humbert is a literary critic or whatever it is that he does, um, he's constantly trying to compare himself um, to other great literary figures who have perhaps had similar inclinations. So he's like, look, you know, Beatrice was like nine. And, and like Lewis Carroll, uh, like Word about Alice. Yeah. Lewis Carroll. That's right. He, so he talks about Dante and Beatrice. He talks about uh, Lewis Carroll and Alice. He talks about Poe um, and Petrarch. But yeah, he's like trying to compare himself to these literary giants. And he's like, look, you know, this is this this problem that I have was like normal for most of human history. Okay. You know, and the thing is, he's right. <laughs> like, he's like, so, sort of, sort of right. I mean, it is true that, like, in the tale of Genji, for example, Genji has lots of wives, but, like, his primary wife that he really has, like, a great love affair with, and it is ultimately quite touching. Uh, he marries her when she's 13, and she cries initially, uh, and they make, you know, they play with dolls together. He basically raises her to be, like, the perfect wife for him, even though she ends up, they end up having this, like, beautiful love story, and she's, yeah. like, the primary wife. And by the end of the tale of Genji, like, you're kind of on board with their relationship, but she's, like, 12. Well, yeah, it's true. So basically, like, as soon as you would menstruate, they're going to marry you off because you're going to have babies because that's like your job. And you're going to marry well and you're going to keep the family's property, right? I mean, you're just going to keep this thing going. Like, that's your job as a young girl. And I think even the Vatican, so like Vatican City, um, still had the marriageable age as like 12 oh until God. like... I'm not kidding. Until like 20 years ago, and somebody just like sort of pointed it out, like, "Hey, this this looks bad." It's <laughs> done. Like it, it looks quite bad. <laughs> I think this is no good. And so he's sort of like trying to elicit all of the sympathy for himself on the one hand, and then on the other hand, he's like, "I am a complete pervert," and 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 like a mess, you know? Yeah. Um. So so Humbert is the only narrator we have. And on the we one hand, he's... some of Lolita's perspective in, I think, more than critics of the novel are want to acknowledge. Do you think that perspective is reliable? Like, do you think he's a reliable narrator? I don't think that he's a reliable narrator, but I do think that in his own obliviousness, uh, Lolita's suffering becomes apparent. So there's like the one scene in the book where Lolita is walking ahead of him with one of her friends uh, and they're talking and he hears her make some remark about death and how the worst thing about uh, dying is that everybody dies alone. And he has a brief moment where he thinks to himself, I realize I didn't know anything about like Lolita's inner life because I was so obsessed with uh, her body <laughs> and with having yeah. sex with her that I never yeah. really gave a thought to her inner life. And in fact, she's like a total stranger to me. Um, and I think that there's several moments in the book um, that I think Nabokov has... I would wager that it is intentional, but that's certainly like occasion reflection on how uh, Humbert's account of what's happening leaves out Lolita's perspective. I think that that's quite palpable when reading the book. And I think that people who are disgusted by the book understate the extent to which that's true. One of Humbert's obvious problems of his many problems is that he's really never able to, even from the very beginning, he's never able to see Lolita as like her own person, um, separate from him, he's she's just an object of his lust from the very beginning. And problematically, the like one of the first things that he says about her, but it's so telling. So this is when he first sees Lolita. She is Annabelle. 
Right. I mean, he just immediately says, like, she's my dead bride, like, right in front of me. And you're like, oh. <laughs> is she? Is she, though? Um, yeah, I think that that is definitely one of his problems. I mean, part of the part of the problem is that he basically has scorn for almost everybody that he encounters in the novel. I think that there's almost nobody in the novel that he thinks of uh, respectfully, with the exception of Annabelle, probably because he encountered her as an equal. Um, but he has basically unabashed open disdain for Lolita, which in some ways makes sense because she's 12 and he is 40. Um, and I think, although we can respect children as adults, they are not stimulating like romantic partners and they're not conversational equals because they're Well, children. hopefully not. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also like he finds Lolita really vulgar because he represents her at least as like a really stereotypical, uh, American, grossly, disgustingly, grotesquely American uh, yeah. teen, and this offends his European sensibilities. And she's uninterested in reading literature. She only reads magazines, and she only wants to eat like ice cream and hamburgers. I mean, almost to the point where he must be misrepresenting her because no one could be this stereotypical teenager. He never really sees her as she really is. Like, I mean, sometimes he sort of like breaks through his, his lust, but he sees her as, you know, Annabelle part two, right? Um, he, and in some she, ways he sees like every child that he's attracted to in that way. I mean, he doesn't, they're all just like aesthetic objects for him. And in fact, they all look pretty similar to one another. Like the criteria for being a nymphette, ensure a nymphette is his word for the uh, right. particular kind of young girl that he's attracted to and they're... Their ages are between the magic islands of 8 and 14, I believe is the right. phrase. And mm -hmm. they're all like long-limbed and they all look sort of similar to each other. So already he has a pretty instrumentalizing relationship to all of them. He doesn't see any of them as so individual. That's right. They all kind of have a petit garçon sort of thing going on. You know, yeah. like, um, <laughs> that, right? Because as soon as they would have like breasts, you know, or hips, like that's no good. No, um, no. He doesn't. He's not into that. And to the extent that he's having sex with women, um, he says it's just a palliative, right? It's just to, like, get him to keep going, right? He's like, absolutely not attracted to women. So the reason that he meets Lolita is because he's looking for a place to live. And Lolita's mom, Charlotte, um, has this room, right? So she's offering uh, a room to someone. And, and he shows up to take a look at the room and he hates it, right? He's like, oh God, I don't want to live here. This is terrible. I definitely don't want to live with this vulgar American woman who, <laughs> who thinks, right, that she knows some French and is like sophisticated, but isn't. And then he sees Dolores, right? And, and then he all decides of a sudden, to stay. This is a place. I must live here, <laughs> right? <laughs> so we're already like, oh geez. So Charlotte, let's talk about Charlotte. I really pity her. I mean, it's, I think it's telling that like, so when I first read this book, when I was like 12, I, it didn't offend me morally. I had no inkling of the fact that maybe what Humbert was doing was wrong. I read it as completely unironic love story. And I was completely unsympathetic to Charlotte because I took Humbert's view of her. And Humbert is, I mean, unremittingly uh, so insulting <laughs> in his in his descriptions of Charlotte as yeah. sort of like this, but he, he calls her scornfully like a handsome woman. Like she's, mm -hmm. she's big and graceless and, but in fact, uh, she's in love with him and it's sad. <laughs> yeah, it is really sad. So, um, so Charlotte also is unable to see 
what's right in front of her nose. Like she's also not really in contact with reality because if she were, she might sort of pick up that this guy is creepy and has the hots for her at that time, I think 10 year old daughter. And she's quite mean to Lolita as well. Like she doesn't like Lolita very much because she perceives Lolita to basically just be uh, intruding and getting in the way of her burgeoning romance with Humbert. She's very impatient with Lolita. Yeah, that's true. She's a little hard on Dolores. (laughs) So the dad died somehow tragically and so charlotte's trying to raise dolores by herself and it's clear that she's very frustrated with her and for for which i obviously have a lot of sympathy i'm raising to uh well you know i have a 12 year old daughter and a 14 year old son so they are frustrating creatures (laughs) it's a bad Um, age range it's true (laughs) um and i mean a two-year-old's a frustrating creature too but it's like more obvious and she feels like you know, the way a lot of parents of teenagers feel like you're lazy, you're wasting your potential, like you're interested in all the wrong things. And like, it's all true, <laughs> you know, <laughs> actually, of Dolores. <laughs> but you're right, she she is pretty hard on her. And there also is this strange, you know, thing where, so in a sense, she does see Lolita as in the way of her romantic interest, which is with Humbert, um, which is hilarious because... Humbert sees Charlotte as the <laughs> obvious obstacle to the only thing that he wants, which is Lolita. And then very conveniently, what happens? Um, well, so she discovers his diary that he's written in this illegible scrawl that he thinks no one will ever be able to decode. And he's documenting his obsession with Lolita. Um, and Charlotte, when cleaning his room one day, after they've already been married and he's convinced Charlotte that he loves her, she reads the diary. Um, he tries to convince her that it's notes for a novel, which is like one of Nabokov's like winking <laughs> gestures. Um, she freaks out, writes a bunch of letters to her friends that she intends to post, runs out into the street and is hit by a car and dies. Um, immediately. <laughs> immediately. Although she has written a letter to Humbert in which she says that she's willing to forgive him for his pedophilic impulses for Lolita and that perhaps they can be together if he like apologizes and says that he loves her. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it's super sad. Um, Yeah, well, I think that to me, like, one of the most gut-wrenching bits in the novel is when Charlotte writes her first letter, the one to Humbert. Oh, yeah. Sort of pours out her heart, like, in this very desperate way, like, oh, I love you, mon chéri, and it's like this bad French. And, you know, like, she she somehow can't even say mon chéri properly, and um, she spells it wrong or something. And he's so disgusted by this, like, um, gushing, over-the-top affection. But, of course, he also exploits her vulnerability and is like, yeah, I love you too, and and now I'm going to seduce your daughter. And she's just (laughs) a pathetic figure. Like, once they get married, she does all these home improvement projects to make the house nice for him. Um, And, in fact, I... I think that she might be the ultimate victim of Lolita. Well, of course, Lolita is also a victim, but I do feel quite bad for Charlotte. I suppose as I am like a, now I am an aging woman, an adult, I feel that her loneliness is sad to me. Yeah. No, I think she is a sad figure. Um, And part of it is that somehow she's either through her own insecurity, her own vulnerability, her own desire for Humbert is she's sort of like oblivious to what's going on right in front of her um, in a way that 
Lolita is less oblivious, right? I think Lolita gets it. Well, Lolita has a crush extent. on him initially. Um, yeah, so let's talk about that. I don't think she quite understands uh, the stakes because I don't think that she quite has any idea what it would actually be like to enter into like romantic relationship with like a 40 year old pedophile. But she does perceive herself to have a crush on him because he has, I think he describes it as like, I don't know, like leading man in a movie, good looks. He's like big and hairy and French and so appealing to 12 year old girls. He's apparently very hairy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he talks about that a lot. I mean, she likes Humbert. Um, she she likes being around him. Um, they have, um, even before Charlotte dies, they have these, I don't know, how should we describe some of their encounters? I mean, they're obviously sexual from Humbert's point of view. They have like a flirtatious relationship, Yeah, I would say. From Lolita's perspective, a, a flirtatious relationship. Um, yeah. So Lolita is, I mean, she's a really interesting character because she's not, um, she's not this kind of doe in the woods, extremely innocent sort of child. She herself is, I don't know, coming into her sexuality, coming into her puberty. She's not sexually inexperienced, right? By the time that Humbert allows himself to just fully give into his lust, right? Whereas before, he's sort of like being careful. Is it sort of like we see Humbert being progressively less inhibited, less careful. And then there's a point where he's like, yeah, I'm just going to do this, right? But he initially plans to drug her, uh, but then she, he claims, uh, initiates their sexual encounter, so he doesn't have to drug her. Um, That's although, right. again, it seems to me unclear whether when she, she initiates kissing him after she's come back from summer camp, where she's like already lost her virginity at summer camp. Right. However, it's unclear that she's aware of how far uh, it's going to go after, after she kisses him. But she is the one who kisses him. According to Humbert. According which, to again, Humbert. Yeah. it's sort of like, well, I don't really know how, how much of this I should believe. But yeah, well, he actually says dear reader she seduced, seduced me. me yeah yeah and you're kind of like or at least me i'm like no really no though way. but that's sort of his his perspective is like he's he's kind of um in a way i think he's he's a little disappointed freaked out you know that she isn't a virgin that she isn't this sort of you know snow white pure thing that he's thinking but um, i think he also kind of likes it because he has all these passages where he says that like what he finds irresistible is sort of the the mixture of vulgarity and innocence that lolita embodies that physically she's just a perfect like innocent specimen and yet her temperament is so uh debased i think he likes the the combination to some extent that may be true, yeah. I mean, look, he's definitely he's definitely obsessed with Lolita. And he's he's obsessed to the point of being ridiculously stupid. And I think that's one of the more honest features of the novel is kind of like how lust slash love slash obsession are really hard to disentangle in, yes. in any obvious way. <laughs> Right? It's like, is it love? Is it lust? Is it obsession? It's all of them, right? He, like, picks her up from camp. He initially tells her that her mom is having surgery. He doesn't tell her that she's dead. Right. (laughs) Um, And so after they've been 
gallivanting around on a road trip for a little while and he's he has allowed himself to be quote unquote seduced by lolita after lolita gets tired of having sex with him over and over and sort of demands to be taken to her mother and to check in on her mother he then abruptly tells her that her mother is dead um which leads to i think one of the more wrenching passages in the book where she leaves and she goes and she cries uh and then she comes back and he says uh at the hotel we had separate rooms but in the middle of the night she came sobbing into mine and we made it up very gently you see, she had absolutely nowhere else to go. And that's the end right. of part one. Yeah. Yeah. And that is a really heartbreaking scene. Um, because it's one of the moments where Humbert is in contact with reality. Right. Where he seems to be telling us something very true. Namely, that he has sort of cornered his prey. And she has nowhere to go. She has nowhere to turn except to him. It seems like a very honest moment yes, as opposed think... to other ones where he's like, oh, she seduced me or, you know. <laughs> and he really... kind of admits that she's like a 12 year old in this part. Like, I think that in many other parts of the book, he represents her to us and to himself as if she is physically a 12 year old, but as if uh, internally she's somehow older than that because she's corrupt. But I think at this this part, he acknowledges uh, her actual age and inexperience to some extent. So then part two is basically a really long road trip. Which is beautiful. It contains like absolutely beautiful passages about like the American landscape that are some of my favorite in the book. Some people say that Lolita is also a book about sort of like a European trying to reckon with America. Which Nabokov himself sort of, he says, he says that in his in his famous afterword where he like rejects all these interpretations that people have given of the book, he says that if any interpretation is right, then maybe the one according to which Lolita represents the English language, uh, or like American, vulgar English, uh, mm -hmm. that interpretation comes closer to the truth than any of the others. So it's like sort of about uh, his affair with American slang. So when I think about the first time that I read Lolita, I've only read it twice. I read it when I was 18 and I read it when I was 41 felt very different. <laughs> um, I loved it both times, although in a different way. But yeah, the first time I read it, you know, the pedophilia stuff was sort of interesting, but it seemed like really remote to me. Um, the thing that really struck me was his use of language. The fact that this was a work of dazzling beauty and, but not, but not just that, it's sort of like he does things with English that are surprising that you don't expect that you're like oh i didn't really know you could do that right yeah and um and so yeah i think the first time that i read the novel i was like well the real love affair in this story is with the english language and maybe that was how i sort of um you know, settled it in my mind that this was a fine book. <laughs> right. But I think that oh, that's the real romance. Sort series. of true. I think that that's sort of true. Um, and in the afterward, he he says something about how, like, the real tragedy in his life is that he's no longer he's been exiled from his native language and he's like no longer able to to write in Russian because he's no longer able to write for a Russian audience or live in Russia. And so I think that maybe this is a narrative about expulsion from childhood that is parallel to his transition from his like native, the language of his childhood to the language of his adulthood. Um, 
And so it's, I guess, a, both a, a tragic story and like a love story. But I do think that the language itself is like so palpably erotic because it's so beautiful to read aloud. Like it's so visceral. Well, it's, yeah, it's definitely erotic in the very classical sense where you're just passionately drawn to it, right? Like it calls you out and you are in awe of it. But it, it's full of like alliteration and stuff. Like it's very... um like sensuous prose like some people write beautiful prose but it's not sensuous like henry james writes like beautiful ornate prose in the way that like a classical sculpture is beautiful but like lolita is written in like this very like carnal language that even when you're reading it your mouth like moves along with it well yeah i mean i think one of the things that was so striking to me about it um from the beginning was like i didn't understand you could write about sex like that <laughs> I think it's Where actually like, beautiful sex writing, which I know is a controversial, is. uncomfortable thing to say. But like, I think one of my favorite things about this book is it's like an erotic masterpiece. And then he's such a careful observer of her body. And like all the parts of her body that he talks about are not like the traditional, traditionally sexualized parts of a person's body. Yeah. Like he notices like the crenellated the band her of arms. her shorts and like yeah. her monkeyish feet, I think is yeah. at one point. And like, it's yeah. so beautiful. Yeah. But it's also creepy. It like, is the creepy. thing is, 12-year-old girls do have monkeyish feet. Like, that's the thing. Like, so for me this time around, that stuff was always super creepy because he, he really clearly does get at sort of like a 12-year-old girl's body. So that, that part for me is, is like um, more uncomfortable with this time because I'm kind of like, <laughs> you know. Um, but I think that the novel, and I think you talk about this in your um, really wonderful essay for the point called The Real Lolita, um, you talk about the fact that, look, um, great literature isn't always supposed to be, it doesn't always function to do one thing. And sometimes great literature should make you uncomfortable. Um, and Lolita definitely does for me. <laughs> yes. Like one of the questions that you raise in your, in your essay and like the obvious question for, for anyone reading Lolita is, well, look, how can I enjoy a novel about this? He's raping a girl. That seems really bad. The novel doesn't function like in this didactic way, you know, where it's like, oh, let me tell you about this bad thing and why you shouldn't do this bad thing. Like, and of course, Nabokov, like himself and in discussions of the book was very opposed to the extraction of a moral message from the book. Yeah, he seems to be opposed to thinking of literature in that way generally i have written i have written down the quote in this microsoft word document where he says there are gentle souls who would pronounce lolita meaningless because it does not teach them anything i am neither a reader nor a writer of didactic fiction and lolita has no moral in tow for me a work of fiction exists only insofar as it affords me what i shall bluntly call aesthetic bliss that is a sense of being somehow somewhere connected with other states of being where art curiosity tenderness kindness ecstasy is the norm i mean you sort of hear that and you're like yeah maybe except child rape like should i go there for this and so one has to think reading lolita that it wasn't a complete accident that he chose something that he knew was going to repulse his readers no i mean that's certainly central to the book and i think i mean even in his list of i guess domains where art reigns supreme uh where art is the norm he includes kindness and tenderness 
on the list. So I think maybe despite himself, he acknowledges to some extent that it's impossible to have a work of like narrative fiction with characters that isn't morally infused in, in some way. I find Nabokov as a person very mysterious. Not a nice person, seemingly, in many ways. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was talking to a student about this, a student of mine in my philosophy class about this, because um, she saw that I had Lolita in my bag, and she was like, oh my god, and then we just talked about Nabokov for like two hours, but yeah, she was saying like, he's like a super jerk basically uh she was saying that there are these stories of him teaching at cornell and his wife vera would come in and rub his feet while he lectured and i was like okay well that's that's like pretty much beyond the pale <laughs> that is absolutely wild i mean so, so, <laughs> like that's true he, he was come really on. nice to vera and like they were quite in love and they had a good relationship and he was not especially creepy towards women, so, I mean, those things are great. And he certainly wasn't, like, actually a pedophile, but he was extremely pompous and extremely dismissive of, like, basically every, not every, but, like, a huge number of, like, excellent authors. Like, he said really mean stuff about, like, Dostoevsky and Faulkner and Joyce and, like, basically in a lot of his interviews, the sense you get is, like, he thinks that he's, like, the only smart person who's ever lived and, like, the only good writer and, like, the best writer. <laughs> I always feel like... Like, maybe he's messing with us a little bit, you know? One of the things that I was thinking about as I was preparing for this podcast was the way that he is using Poe in particular. And, of course, Poe also was one of the American literary critics who was pushing this art for art's sake kind of line that he and his famous afterward and Nabokov's famous afterward to Lolita is also kind of putting forward, like, there is no point other than great art and to look for a point is is like vulgar or whatever one sort of wonders if Lo, if lolita itself is sort of like testing that proposition like is it true well let's let's investigate right let me write something of dazzling beauty about raping um my stepdaughter. Right? But I, right. I, mean, I think in some ways, like, Lolita fails to establish that point because it is precisely, like, the moral complexity of Lolita that makes it such an amazing book. I mean, of course, the beauty of the language, like, contributes and makes it a total pleasure. But I do think that a book as beautifully written um, that had no moral dimension to it wouldn't be a great novel in the way that Lolita is. So what is the moral complexity of Lolita? Well, I mean, of course, there's many possible answers to that. I mean, I think that my ultimate belief is that I think that part of what makes the book so genius is that Nabokov manages to make Lolita's suffering both invisible and immensely palpable. Like, it seems to me to, like, totally suffuse the text. Um, as a 12-year-old reader, I missing the irony, thinking it's just a beautiful love story. I didn't quite get that. But then when I read it, I've read it like four or five times now. Um, and when I read it again in high school and then now as a maybe adult or like aspiring adult, it You're seems... You're an adult. <laughs> I yeah. guess now I'm officially an adult, but a grad yeah, student. I, so. I pronounce yeah. you an adult. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, here I am, adult. Um, and I feel that like Lolita's... This conspicuous silence um, is a very palpable presence in Lolita. And so I think that whether or not Nabokov intended to do that or acknowledged that that's what he was doing, um, he manages in this ingenious way to have uh, a completely myopic narrator be the person who's telling a story, but in such a way that even though Humbert is completely unaware of these things, they seem very obvious to, to a reader. Well, can I press on that a little bit? Um... So what is it that Humbert is completely oblivious to? 
the moral complexity of what's going on? I think at times Humbert convinces himself uh, that he's a good person towards Lolita, that because he's like buying her all these presents and he's willing to do whatever it takes to appease her, uh, she sort of like owes him uh, various sexual favors and such. Um, but I think that her, and he, I think he also just forgets that she's young. Like he he treats her psychologically as if she's an adult, even though he's like fetishizes uh, the youthfulness of her body. But I think that like Nabokov does a really excellent job of including details in the book that make it so obvious to a reader that she's a kid. Like she's so physically childlike, uh, and so many of her mannerisms and many of the things that she says are childlike. And it seems so clear to me that when she when she acts very sexually precocious, really what's happening is that she's just being a middle schooler uh, in the way that we all were when we put on like lip gloss for the middle school dance or something. Uh, and that's so clear to a reader. Um, and I think that Humber himself forgets it and acts as if Lolita can be taken at her word. Um, mm. But I, ne I, I never think that it seems like that to a perceptive reader. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess I think my perception of Humbert is that he's a very tortured self-loathing kind of pathetic guy so i think humbert knows that he's a jerk basically i mean there's so many points where he's like you know god i'm a pervert and like what am i doing and you know this is messed up um but then on the next page he's like trying to justify it or trying to explain it away and i think this is what actually makes me have a lot of compassion for Humber because I'm like, yeah, he's just a human, you know, he's a complete mess. And sort of in his better moments, his, his, his cooler moments, he can sort of see that this is absolutely messed up and he's completely trapped this girl um, and he's wronging her and, and he's a pervert. And, but then when he is in the grip of this lust you know it's like Jekyll and Hyde he's like no it's okay right I'm actually like Dante um, I think he's a complicated guy I think there's a lot of self-loathing which actually contributes it's it's the fact that like Humbert hates himself so much that he basically is just like well whatever you know I'm a I'm a lost cause so I might as well really enjoy this but towards the end of the book when Humbert is kind of more in tune with the reality that he's got to give up Lolita. Like, he's not going to get her back. You know, he can't. I mean, he makes this sort of sad, last-ditch effort. Um, For him, it's a big her. deal because she's an adult physically, and he still finds that he loves her upon encountering her again. So. She's pregnant, right? Yeah. I mean, that's got to be, like, the least attractive thing for him. Although he does have brief thoughts of Lolita having a child that he can, in turn, seduce. Uh. Right, which is one of the sickest moments in the whole thing. He's like, oh, she could incubate another nymphette. Like, and you're like, oh, oh man, God. this is, like, really, this is really dark. Thereby becoming just like her mother. Just a stepping stone to another. Um, so Humbert is, like... I mean, he's really, really gross. It also seems to be in contact with this, like to some extent. He sort of recognizes it. Um, but he also insists, especially at the end, that he truly loves Lolita, that this love is eternal. And and you're sort of like, you know, what, what, let, let's consider for a moment that this is true, that he in some sense loves 
Lolita, what what is the sense of this love? Like, what is the use of the term love in this context? I think the sense is that he still finds himself totally drawn to her, right? That in a way that is obsessive, in a way that he can't escape, right? And and that 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 I think is love in a sense. Um, it's not a very good love, but it but it does capture that traditional sense of eros, right? Of just being drawn out of yourself to something else that you that you want, even when maybe it's actually bad for you. Or for the object of your love, in this case. Um, well, yeah, I just always think of Plato um, in The Republic, where is, who's the guy? He's like Leonidas or Leonontus, or I can't remember his name. But he's the general who, like, is obsessed with looking at dead corpses. And he, like, knows that it's creepy, but he just can't help it. I mean, that's a kind of eros. Um, now it's deformed. If we think of the ladder of love, it's, like, way down on the bottom. <laughs> it may not even be on, like, the first rung. But... Um, but it, but it counts, you know, it's this erotic impulse that, um, yeah, it can totally mess everything up for you. So, I mean, I'm um, not sure, I'm not sure that I do think that he loves Lolita, despite his own uh, protestations to the contrary. And I think that that might, I mean, I sort of reject like Plato's picture of love precisely because I think that it is uh, so unconcerned with like the specificity of the object of love i mean i know that there's like lots yes. of scholarly debate about uh whether once you reach the stage of recognizing that what you've always been pursuing is like the form of the beautiful or maybe the form of the good maybe they're the same maybe they're not who knows but like are you permitted to like continue to love the person that you like first fell in love with or are you supposed to devote like all of your aesthetic resources to just appreciating the form of the beautiful and it's quite unclear and i, I mean i think that humbert is in some ways, his relationship to Lolita is like quite platonic because what he's trying to access through her is the ideal nymphette that he's like been pursuing since he had this relationship with Annabelle Lee. And so, I mean, I do, I do think that it, like there is something very poignant about his relationship to Lolita because he he can't live without uh, without the idea of her. Uh, he can't he can't stand to give up the idea that he will be satisfied and that he'll be able finally to get into contact with whatever it is that he wants. But I'm not sure that given his total disregard for her as a person, for her internal life, even though he's quite attuned to the specificities of her body in a way that I think is like, makes for beautiful erotic writing. I don't know mm -hmm. that I think that he loves her probably for the same reasons that I like reject Plato's account of love. Yeah, so it's, so it's interesting. <laughs> well, so I'll just now plug episode three where I talked to Tal Brewer about this. <laughs> um, Tal, Tal Brewer, amazing philosopher, um, who is, I think maybe has a forthcoming book on Eros in which he tackles exactly this problem about, um, about Plato's view. And then he, um, sort of brilliantly brings in this idea of a kind of stereoscopic vision. And anyway, he's got like some complicated theory about this and how, how to work through exactly this Good. problem well, and save it. Plato's view. It reminds me of your conversation about Madame Bovary to some extent, because I mean, Emma Bovary is sort of doing a similar thing, like in each of her yes. lovers, like she is seeking some ideal Fantasy. kind of satisfaction that no person can actually like afford her. And really That's it has right. nothing to do with any of the people that she is involved with. That's right. Brilliant. Yes. <laughs> episode four. Yeah. Which I, which I, listened <laughs> I to think it was episode four. But like, I, so I actually think this is also, I don't know if this is right. Um, 
But when I was reading this for the second time, all I could think about was Madame Bovary. Um, because you sort of have, I mean, it's like so many of the same themes are there, right? You have someone who has um, a, a preconceived vision, right, that they put on someone else. So in this case, we have Humbert who has his Annabelle and then, you know, just sees it in Lolita and is like, oh, I can finally have it, right? This thing that I always, uh, that I've been wanting for like the past 20 years, it's like finally here, except it's not Annabelle, right? And except the thing that he wants is like this idyllic, you know, one afternoon, which it's, it's a fantasy, which he then projects onto this little girl. And of course he, he ruins her in the process and also obviously ruins himself. And this does feel sort of like very much what happened to Emma Bovary. I mean, I sympathize with, not with Humbert's behaviors, but I sympathize uh, with the desire for some kind of all satisfying, like all encompassing, union with the meaningful so i understand what both of them are seeking and why but i also find that emma bovary is like in general a much more sympathetic character because i can understand why her circumstances would push her to have this attitude towards the people she loves she's like forced into marriage because she like exists in a social situation in which she's not able to like pursue a job and so on and so forth so like for her this like way of relating to people like makes more sense and like i find emma bovary to be one of the more sympathetic characters although she's obviously in many ways like unappealing and unkind to those around her in literature whereas although humbert is wonderfully sketched uh and in some ways one of the moral dimensions of this book is that it is so empathetic to this horribly monstrous person i think ultimately i find him less uh forgivable than emma bovary <laughs> well i love emma bovary I have like enormous compassion for her. She was a wreck, of course, and completely messed up and obviously things didn't go well for her, but I have a lot of sympathy for her. I still have sympathy for Humbert. I think with you, I'm not sure if you have like no sympathy for him or I just have, like, less. a little sympathy for him, but not as much as uh, for her. But I also feel like this whole two year joyride, it's a joyride from his perspective that they're taking you know, they're, they're just driving from hotel, motel to motel throughout the States, uh, like going nowhere because all they're doing is having sex. It just reminds me of the scene in Madame Bovary where she With finally the carriage. consummates. Yeah. yeah. Where it's like, <laughs> they're just in this carriage rolling around Paris, finally consummating their affair. And it's the same sort of metaphor, right? Like they finally have just completely closed themselves off from reality, right? From anything other than this sexual desire. And like, and yet it's unsatisfying, like, because, I mean, I guess, like, the destinationlessness of the journey in some ways represents the, like, unfulfillability of Humbert's desires. Like, you think that he, as soon as he consummates it, that's, that's the end of book one, and you wonder, like, when, before you start part two, like, is this going to change everything for him? Like, is his life going to be elevated in this kind right. of, like, quasi-religious way that he expects? And then, of course not. No, he's just going to drive right. indefinitely. Uh, that's right. Because his lust is, like, inexhaustible. That's right. And I think, I mean, I actually think in both novels, um, it's, it's sort of like a metaphor for lust, actually, because lust, unlike love, there's some very often hard to distinguish, but, you know, the, the, the deep respect in which just lust is unlike love is that lust is this very closed off inward looking thing, 
right? Because you just you you just want the gratification. Like you want this need to be fulfilled. And it is a kind of closing off from everybody else, like whoever you're wronging whatever you know you 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 are closed off from everything else and you're just like in the grip of your own passion um whether the passion is mutual or not and so i think the idea of like the carriage or just being on this like car ride going nowhere forever i mean you might as well have just been driving around in a circle the way that uh, emma and rodolphe were like just driving around Paris um, because like lust, it doesn't have anywhere to go, right? It's only just going to exhaust itself. Um, and then where are you going to be? Well, you're probably just going to experience the same lust again. Which is exactly um, what Humbert says, basically, is that like he himself expected that he would like, something would change for him. But really what happens is like, they have sex, he feels bad about it. And then immediately he like wants to have sex with Lolita again. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and that, and that, um, you know, those are the two halves of, of Humbert right there. It's like when, so, so he'll like give in to his passion and, or, or rather force it on someone else. And then, okay, now, now I'm in a space of reflection. Oh God, this is terrible. You know? Oh, except I want that again. Yeah. And he's never able to get out of it not even at the end when he sees that um it's over and i think i don't know what you think about this but my impression is that part of the part of the trouble with humbert is that he's never able to escape the past right so this this fantasy of what he lost that summer in france is something that he's never he's never able to get beyond it right so even when he tries to realize it with Lolita and it's hopeless and it's ruined his life and now he's in prison, um, he can't let go. And this is characteristic of Nabokov's writing about Russia, I think, like in a, in a lot of his books where that are that are pure, uh, that are not at all grotesque to read, that involve no whiff of pedophilia, his nostalgia for his childhood in Russia and his very... Uh, physical memories of like the smells of Russia and the sounds of Russia uh, is like pervasive in books like The Gift and in, like a lot of his short stories. In some ways, this book like, reminds me of a lot of his other writing and that the intensity of the character's yearning for this child, this moment of childhood bliss uh, is something that is present in a lot of his other stuff too. Although like the thing that he desires is not like a 12 year old girl, it's uh, living in a Russia that no longer exists. So one of the things that you say in your essay um, about what what Lolita is really a, a symbol for, so one of the things that you suggest is that she's a symbol for desire itself or the things we love but we cannot keep. Yeah, I guess I just want you to say more about that for our listeners. So I mean, I think there's one sense in which it's just unlikely that... Uh the people you love are going to love you back, but there's maybe more like an Augustinian sense in which just as humans, uh, everything that we love is finite, we're finite. Uh, we're in, I mean, much like Humbert on his road trip, we're in constant motion, so nothing that we love remains similar. And I think, I mean, this book highlights like the precarity of a relationship with a particular love object, given that of course people are always aging, but Lolita can only remain like the object of Humbert's love for like a very short period of time because like soon she's going to uh, have an adult body and like no longer be appealing to him. And like 
when she goes to summer camp, he's very worried about this because he says, like, I'm going to miss, like, several months of Lolita's nymphethood because so quickly she's going to pass towards adulthood. Um, and I think that this is the relationship that in some sense we bear towards, like, all objects of desire as mortal beings uh, because we can never have the complete possession of them that we long for. And this also, I yeah. mean, this is in the symposium as well, uh, like, Diotima. Yeah. Diotima says to Socrates that, like, part of why we always have an incomplete relationship to things that we love unless they're to the form of the beautiful uh, is because we can never possess them forever. That's right. This is the stuff of the confessions. This is Augustine's restless heart. I love it. Um, uh, it's so no, true. Augustine's the best. Like, in this tradition, you have this recognition that even though, yeah, we're finite beings, nothing finite satisfies us. Right. And so we're always left with this sense that nothing ever really fulfills us. And yet we're still left with the desire that something would. Right. And of course, for the for the Christians, they're thinking, well, you know, something eventually will and it's God. And, you know, once you once you have the beatific vision, then actually literally um, there will be nothing left for you to know and nothing left for you to want. You'll be totally, it's just like total ecstasy forever. And for Plato, maybe that's being a philosopher. You, you stand in this relation to the forms. That's right. So any, any ecstasy that you have in this life, which, you know, is pretty awesome. It's a foretaste of that. Right. But, but we're sort of like, you know, we're pilgrims or wayfarers, like we're not there yet. So in that sense, um, you're not, you're not doomed right? <laughs> in the Christian tradition. It's not just like, yeah, and then one day you're going to die. That's just it. But I think, you know, whatever, I mean, there's just like, whatever your commitments are about whether the structure of desire is ultimately doomed. It's just a fact. One way in which it goes off the rails is with, you know, sexual desire that we put all of our hope that some, some kind of erotic connection is going to be what totally fulfills us and then of course like you know it always ends. it's not yeah <laughs> right i mean this reminds me um, of Eric murdoch as well i think that like there's whiffs of like the sea of the sea in here and that that's also like an amazing book about like erotic fixation in which yeah. the character's entire sense of meaning like derives from his sense that if he were reunited with this person that he loved that everything else in his life would suddenly seem fulfilling to him and like they would have this like perfectly complete union and of course he's like totally delusional in like much the same way that Humbert is like he also kidnaps actually the person but the delusion is powerful like why is the delusion that oh you know this is going to be the person that totally fulfills me because you want it I, I feel uh, along this axis I sympathize with Humbert <laughs> Yeah, like he, I mean, in some sense, you know, whatever, he wants the good. It's just, wow, it really, it really goes badly. I want to return to, there's a sense in which this kind of like comes full circle for you and me, given how we met. You talk about the fact that Lolita's was banned when it came out, um, not in the U.S., but in France and in the U.K., which of course is is utterly predictable and banal and stupid. I think it might also have um, been banned. I don't know if it was banned in the U.S., but I think it was, like, not stocked in public libraries and stuff. Probably. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, one, you know, one imagines Mrs. Smith not being thrilled yeah. um, about little Johnny <laughs> coming across Lolita. But at any rate, um, you talk in your essay about kind of feminist me too object like like kind of cancel culture coming down on the book house 
So let's talk about that because I, I am well known and hated for disliking cancel culture. I too dislike cancel culture, and I think that even if I liked cancel culture, the case for canceling Lolita is terrible. Yeah, right. I mean, it just the, yeah. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the Me Too um, canceling of Nabokov and why that's wrong. I mean, I think that like the major thing to say is that. So Nabokov himself, while an unfriendly guy, is not uh, a sexual predator. Uh, this book is not autobiographical. I mean, to my knowledge, and I think to nobody's knowledge, did Nabokov even sexually harass adult women. Um, yeah. So yeah. it's not like, I mean, in general, I have I have questions about what it what you're really doing morally wrong when you continue to consume someone's art and the person's dead because you're not benefiting them. You're not contributing mm -hmm. to a situation in which they have power to abuse people in the future. So I don't really see like what there is to be gained for protesting uh, the art of somebody that we know was mean to women or other people, but who's dead. So first of all, Nabokov's dead. You're not supporting Nabokov. Supporting, supporting Nabokov's literature now is not contributing to a culture in which he could abuse anyone. Second of all, he didn't abuse anybody. So it, even if there were some way in which uh, continuing to support some dead person like allows them to abuse people on the other side of the celestial sphere, that there's no risk yeah. of that in this case because he's not an abuser. It's sort of like, imagine reading Emma Bovary and thinking it were endorsing adultery. Like, what book did you read? Yeah, it's just like a book <laughs> so in which confused. this happens. Like, I, yeah. I think that like, one, I find it very irritating is like one thing about the cancel culture attempt to cancel lots of things that like depict unsavory events is that like not every depiction of an unsavory event is like an endorsement of that event and in fact yeah, if you want course. art to criticize certain kinds of behavior it has to like depict it it's so, like in game of thrones which i don't think is a great work of art by any means uh people were really angry because there's lots of rape in game of thrones and it's like well but it yeah. seems unpleasant like it's it's a representation of like a highly misogynistic culture in which like an unpleasant yeah. thing is like happening to people and they feel upset about it like that's how rape should be represented yeah, did not watch Game of Thrones. It's My not worth it. Secret. It's not good. However, like I found the rape <laughs> stuff uh, respectful and that it was like upsetting to watch and like that's how yeah. it should be. <laughs> yeah. No, I just decided I didn't have time. For, for Game of Thrones. Um, I mean, that's... Which I lost a lot of my life. deeply upsetting to my husband. He's totally yeah. obsessed with it, but whatever. Um, well, but you also say... So this is... Um, I have in my marginalia... Oh my God, yes. Um to this little line of yours, which I thought was really great. Um, so you say, this is from your essay, The Real Lolita. Watching denizens of the Me Too movement squint so suspiciously at a book I have found so beautiful in so many ways, I can't help but feel that we are depriving ourselves to no end. We, the survivors of male abusers and the victims of workplace harassment are supposed to become gluttons for the additional punishment of excommunicating artworks bearing the slightest tint of taint. I just wanted to come hug you after I read Thank that. Thank you. I, I would like, love to hug you as well. Yeah. I like, consent. Please, someone understands. <laughs> like, like, how does taking art away from us help anything? It doesn't. Um, only if you had the absolutely perverse belief that this was a novel, um, putting forth Humbert Humbert as like a good guy or someone like, um, or the, 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 like this was, this story was like heartwarming or 
something. And, and it's, it's um, hard to the story is like, devastating. A work of art that is good that would be like a, such a straightforward endorsement of like terrible behavior. I, I mean, I, I feel like basically the only case ever to be made for excommunicating a work of art or philosophy or scholarship that brings people joy or interest is if there's some very clear direct connection between the consumption of the thing and putting the person in a position to abuse more people. But that's, right. I mean, that's rarely true. Like even when you download John Searle's articles off of uh, your university library system, you're not like putting money into John Searle's pockets, you know? Yeah. Also, John Searle is the worst. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, it's not, I don't derive lots of uh, joy or pleasure from reading, like, John Searle's essays. But uh, the connection between... I just, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think it just sort of comes back to the central tension. I think the thing that, like, really upsets people is that it's so beautiful, you know? And, and they're like, this should never be made beautiful. And that's something that they all say, like in every essay that I read, that was one of these essays that had a headline, like rereading like Lolita, I realized it's misogynist. Like every person is like, I was obsessed with this book. And that's when I realized that something was wrong. But like, they all have to make some sort of concession to its beauty because it is just so right. beautiful. Yeah, because it is. Um, yeah. So, um, at, you know, at the end of the essay, you talk about, um, you return to the first scene where um, there's, there's, a, there's a real legitimate sexual encounter between Lolita and Humbert Humbert. Um, not, not the scene where, where he rapes her for the first time, but that is, you know, a very sexual encounter nevertheless. And um, you talk about how they're having this playful exchange with the apple um, and how the apple sort of you know, in a way, it's like a symbol of their passion or the, the carnal nature of, of, of what's going on and and how it's it's delicious, it's delectable, and how the novel sort of has that quality. Um, and all of that is true. But I also wondered, um, the apple to me seemed really obvious in another way, and that is that, you know, to go back to Augustine, right? What did the apple represent in the story of creation, the story of the fall, right? Lust. Um, what what Augustine calls the lust of the eyes, um, and how we um, can be we can be so easily overwhelmed um, with the good that we see that we want right that we can no longer hold in our own consciousness that like oh yeah it was like the one thing god said like not to do um it was like the only thing he said not to do was eat the damn apple like how is it that you couldn't manage that um well actually you know the honest truth is it's like really easy for humans to be stupid in exactly this way um and, you know, Augustine ends up calling it concupiscence, um, you know, fancy Latin word, but it, but it really is this sense of, you know, the passion of what is delectable and right in front of you. It, but it's another signal that if, if that, re if that maybe somewhat obvious reading of the scene is correct, it's just like another, you know, it's an, it's, it's another obvious place where like Nabokov is signaling, like, this is a little messed up, right? I mean, this isn't, you know, we're, we're meant to think like, hey, this is a sin, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> yeah, like what's certainly. happening isn't exactly, like this is lust, you know? 
anyway, I wonder if you think that's part of what's going on in that scene, if that's part of what the apple represents. I think that that certainly is part of what the apple represents, but I think in some way uh, the symbol is like perversely repurposed by Nabokov because both the apple itself and Lolita as a sort of parallel figure to the apple just becomes so uh, appealing. Like, so she's eating the apple, which she's calling capital D delicious. I have the passage open and it says, she grasped it and bit into it and my heart was like snow under thin crimson skin. It's just so uh, deliciously appealing to read, uh, but it like really seduces you into wanting to be on Humbert's side, at least in this scene. I think that it's very hard to keep um, Lolita's subjectivity in mind because the descriptions of her as a physical being are just so delectable. Like he says also, she was musical and apple sweet. Like, it's just so good. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I guess that makes the sinfulness of it that much more uh, upsetting. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so much, Becca. Thank you so much. This was so fun. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy, theology, and literature podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please share it with your friends and definitely leave us a five-star review on iTunes. We need those reviews in order to become more visible to others. And if you are on social media, you can now follow the podcast on Twitter at Eudaimonia Pod. 